Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. I am delighted to be back and I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Lenny Ruchitsky. Lenny has built the biggest business publication on Substack with well over 500,000 readers. That is half a million readers. It's called Lenny's Newsletter and it started in 2019 as an advice column after he had left Airbnb where he had been for the previous seven years. Since starting the newsletter, Lenny has built a thriving podcast community and job board to go with it. And it really isn't hyperbole to say that Lenny's World has become the destination for product and growth people at companies big and small across the world. Matt and I explore his journey, the strategy behind his products or SKUs as he calls them, and we delve into his mindset, which is particularly unique for someone who has been this successful at building an audience. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Lenny and stick around at the end for my debrief with Matt. Lenny, we are thrilled to have you. Thank you for joining us. You're the person in our field, I would say, that gives the most actionable advice whenever I read or listen or watch anything you put out. I have takeaways, meaningful ones that I can go and deploy in our business the next day. Your growth has been tremendous, but also very well deserved. Last I counted, you had something like 500,000 newsletter subscribers. I'm sure it's higher than that now. Thriving podcast, community, job board. I want to start with a slightly unusual question, but it's a question that Matt and I often ask ourselves and talk about. When you meet someone at an airport or a coffee shop and they ask what you do and they haven't read your newsletter, what do you say in response to that question? I find that really challenging. And I could see why you guys struggle with that too. When I try to describe, I have a newsletter. I read a newsletter online. That sounds so trivial, but that's usually what I do. I read a newsletter about product growth and career advice. But again, it always sounds so lame. Sometimes they say I have a podcast, which sounds even more lame. No one ever wants to say I have a podcast. <laughs> Keep in mind your audience with the uh, have a podcast. Yeah, yeah. We are familiar with that challenge. Your work, I think Dom alluded to the difference in terms of what you're doing versus others and a lot of applicability in terms of anything that you're producing. There's always going to be some actionable takeaway from it. But I've also noticed that you do a lot of proprietary research. You gather a lot of information or data and put that together and put that out. And this is actually something that I think is very unique that I don't see from others, but I'm not sure if I'm just missing it out there. So I know that's very time intensive. Is that a big piece of what you're doing as well? Is that key to the DNA for Lenny and the Lenny empire in terms of doing that proprietary work? I don't know if it's unique, but it kind of came out of a need where I left Airbnb. I started getting all these questions from founders that are building a marketplace. And they're just like, what did Airbnb do here? What did Airbnb do there? And 
I was giving them answers. Here's what Airbnb did. But I always found like, why would they trust this one experience? They don't have a full picture of what other companies did. Who knows? Maybe it was luck. Maybe they would have worked out if they didn't do this thing. So I decided, let me research the top marketplace businesses and understand what they did and then find patterns across all of these other companies. And so that was the first big research piece I did where I interviewed, I think, 17 of the top marketplace companies and put together, here's the pattern across every big marketplace company. And that was more from a self-interest of, I want to know the answer. So that was the first time I did something like this. And then I kind of paused on that. Basically, what I found is most of my writing initially was me sharing my insights from my experience and answering questions based on things I've done. Having done this for four years, you kind of run out of stuff like that. And essentially, I don't have the answers to everything. So when I don't, I'm almost forced to, let me go find the answer for you and interview all the best people that might have interesting insights and then consolidate their insights into something that you could use. Basically, I'm just doing primary research on behalf of readers, spending hundreds of hours a lot of times doing this for them. That's why I think my newsletter is such a good value for a lot of people, even though it's 150 bucks a year. How do you square that between the weekly cadence of your releases? Are you sequencing things well in advance, knowing that this stuff takes a lot of time to pull out? I'm sure every post doesn't require quite so much time. Some will be longer and some will be shorter. How do you think about kind of the pipeline of content that you've got to work with? I usually have a big post like that behind the scenes that I'm working on over many months while I put out a post every week. So it's basically kind of this back burner post where I just know it's going to take a long time and I just start on it and iterate on it as I have time while I work on a post that comes out once a week. Is there a drastically different performance in terms of the engagement from your readers when you do those big posts versus the weekly cadence? Generally, there's a strong correlation between hours spent on a post and how well it does, but not always. One of my top 10 posts I spent three hours on. And it did great. And people love it. Other posts surprisingly do well. I wouldn't say I spent 100 hours on a series and it does 10 times better than a post I spent 10 hours on, let's say. So the ROI is not amazing when I go really big, but I don't even think of it that way. I think of it more, there's this puzzle board of all the questions founders and product leaders have, and I'm just filling in every puzzle piece, piece by piece. I just have this list of all the questions I hear often. And I'm just over time trying to answer every question. This recent series I did on how to kickstart and scale a B2B business. It was just like, I need to get to this. I'm going to get to this someday. And that became the time to do it. So I just did it. I have heard you mention that before. The amount of time that you spend on a piece is correlated to the success of that piece. And I actually think that's very contrarian to what you actually hear out there. There's a lot of spray and pray type recommendations in terms of just consistency, getting things out there. You're never going to know what's going to hit. I do wonder if you unpack that a little bit, does it typically relate to proprietary research that you're doing when you're spending that extra time on a piece? I think that could differentiate between others who are maybe just editing and re-editing the same thing over and over again versus doing proprietary work. That's a good question. Like I almost need to look at my top 10 posts and try to look through this lens of is a proprietary in a sense, everything I do, I'm trying really hard to contribute something new to the conversation and not what you just said, which is rehash something that's already been done, resynthesize, curate. Like I just want to give people new information that they haven't had before as much as I can. I'm looking at my top 10 list of posts. The first is actually a guest post. And as a tangent, I'll share real quick. I kind of have three different kinds of posts. I have me answering the question. I have guest posts where I don't have the answer and I find someone who's the best person in the world to answer that question. And then I have these deep research posts you're talking about. In a sense, they're all proprietary. 
you could say everything I do is new information as much as I can. But if you're thinking about these research posts, only two or three out of the top 10 are that style. I've seen you write elsewhere that you weren't a writer. Obviously, you worked at Airbnb, you've been a product manager for a long time. You were an engineer before that. I think your wife, you said, is a writer, and she was a bit baffled that you could make money living online <laughs> yeah. as a writer. She's like a designer writer. She published a few books. She's like first design, graphic designer, second secondary writer. Because I was trying to start a company and I had all these ideas I was exploring. And on the side, I started doing a little bit of writing. And she's like, why are you writing online? You can't make money writing on the internet. You have all these other skills you can use. That's not good use of your time. But I couldn't stop. And then eventually I just decided, let me lean into that and see how it goes. And it worked out, shockingly. It's a good segue into the question I've got, which is obviously in hindsight, it's a beautiful thing. When you look back at your career and even kind of your early career schooling, interests, passions, etc., if you were to connect the dots and say, these things really helped me get to what I do now and result in the product that I put out that hundreds of thousands of people enjoy reading, what would be kind of like the foundational parts of that journey that didn't look like anything at the time, but now have turned into something very substantial? I definitely wasn't a looking forward, connecting the dots thing. This is never where I imagined my life would go. So it's definitely a looking back type of situation. I think one is doing the work that I write about and podcast about, like doing that for a long time was really, really important. I find there's a lot of people that are trying to jump straight to advice giver person or like think influencer person or creator person, but that real serious experience in the space they were talking about. I was an engineer for 10 years. I was founder for a few years. I was a PM for seven years. And that's the stuff I tap into now doing the work that I do. So I think that was really important. Also gives me maybe a second point there is having a variety of experiences, not just being a product manager, not just being an engineer. This is essentially my fourth career. I realized I was an engineer, founder, product manager. And so with that, I can write about a lot of different things. So my newsletter is not just like product management advice. That would be so boring. I can talk about growth and product and engineering and startup stuff and career stuff and managing stuff. So I think those two maybe were the first two that come to mind. And then I guess just working at Airbnb honestly was really important. It really helped me have that brand attached to me when I started writing because then people pay attention. They're like, oh, he did some stuff at Airbnb. Let me see what he's got to share. So that was really important. A lot of people don't have that advantage. As a product manager, you learn to write really succinctly and stay focused and be really clear, get rid of fluff, ship stuff and do stuff, get stuff done. So I think maybe those are the four dots. I'm curious, given something you said at the outset of this conversation in terms of someone asked for my advice, I had only really known this thing at Airbnb. You've now gone out and talked to loads of people in different places with different experiences and skill sets, etc. How much of what you did at Airbnb is still sound advice in your mind for the type of role that you were doing. I guess what I'm getting at is like you often feel in the job that you're doing, people must do it very differently and must have loads of other ideas elsewhere. Whereas the reality often is people are kind of figuring it out and generally it's kind of a similar way. I think it's mostly timeless. People are always talking about product management's changing. People are getting rid of product managers, all going away. But I don't think anything's changed in like 10 years. It's pretty evergreen from what I can recall. I think from a growth perspective, growth channels change and opportunities go away. So I think if anything, growth evolves and changes, but I'm trying to think through the stuff I've written about that's most popular and even less popular. And it's, I think, still pretty solid. One thing that happens is the companies I write about, some of them end up tanking. And then you're like, who cares what this company, who cares what Clubhouse did right? I don't, 
that doesn't seem like a good model for building a company. So I think that's probably the piece that ends up not lasting. There's lessons from every business. And even if businesses have short stints of success, I think that's sometimes overlooked. We had this conversation not long ago about Groupon. And there's so many interesting things about Groupon and how they built that business in the S1. And many people will just dismiss any type of takeaways or lessons, but I think that's quite silly. So I'm a believer that that content will live on. On your point about having that experience, being a practitioner, something that we believe in massively. But as time goes on, we feel this ourselves, you get further and further away from the role that you were in. And there is certainly some timeless wisdom that you've taken away from it that you can apply. But how else do you offset with that natural loss of the day-to-day activity that you had going on before that you could pull from? You're leaning on others when you don't have the answers. But is there anything else you do to combat that? I love that you understand this. It's my worst nightmare to become this talking head that forgot how it actually works. So it's a real challenge. Like it's been four years since I've been an actual product manager at this point. I don't know when it like all fades away. The thing I find that's most helpful is advising companies, being an advisor, because then you hear real problems they're having. You talk through ways to solve those problems. You hear what they've done. You kind of remember things you did. So it kind of reemerges. Things come up again. So that's the main thing I've done that helps. I don't know what else I could do other than just getting a job again and for like a year and like, oh shit, here's what all the things I forgot, but I don't want to do that. But it's a real problem. We talked to Matt Levine and he said that he he would do three month internships and we're trying to crowdsource him to go back into the field for a few months and get inside. So maybe we could do the same with you. This could be the start of a side gig at Colossus. I can't imagine going to work at a company at this point. I feel like the hype would be way too high. Like they'd expect (laughs) way too much from me. I think it's easier for someone to kind of sit back and write and share advice then do the thing. And I think people would be like, oh, he's not what I thought he was. <laughs> I think maybe that's imposter syndrome talking, but still, I think the bar would be way too high. Funny how many of the same thoughts that you have that I have in, <laughs> in relation to my old roles. One other option for this, and while it's not directly the same, is building a business around you and taking a lot of those lessons and applying them in practice, which you do in many ways in terms of how you run your own enterprise. But you mentioned before you were a founder, you mentioned you were looking at starting a business and then you leaned on the writing. Where do you take it from here just in terms of thinking about this as the operation that it is? And it has several different segments in terms of the podcast and recruiting and other things that you're doing. But how far could you go with that, making it into a real corporation versus what it is now? I'm trying very hard not to do that. I'm trying very hard not to build any sort of media business or media empire, anything along those lines. I think that's part of the reason it worked as I was always trying to make this very chill, very focused on just like one thing that I could do well for a long time. This is like really cool life that I've created somehow. I write in one newsletter, you could say one email a week, even before the podcast on one email a week, I was making a living, making much more than I made as a full-time employee at Airbnb. Why would I want to create more work for myself? And I never wanted to do a podcast for that reason. I'm like, well, this is great. Why would I want anything else? But then I eventually crumbled and launched the podcast. I'm happy I did. And the podcast actually less work than the newsletter. That turns out to be cool. Basically, I'm trying not to make it bigger. I have no future big goals or ambitions. I'm very happy with where it is. Mostly, I just want to keep it up <laughs> and not 
have it fall apart. I do fall prey to fancy things and shiny objects occasionally and take on some other stuff. And then I'm like, why did I do that? Why would I want to hurt this whole thing? So that's my answers. I'm not trying to do that. I have no future plans. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Where does that mentality come from? I think partly it comes from I was at Airbnb for a long time and it was intense. It was like incredibly stressful and incredibly long hours, very hard work, plus that startup before that. So I was just like, that was great. I don't need that again right now. I think I almost like had that life experience of like working in the hardest I've ever worked. And I was like, hmm, let me try not to do that. And so that was always my goal down this path. I called it project avoid getting a real job, this writing thing. And with that, it was just like, how do I just design a life where I can take breaks when I want and go on vacation when I want and just like have a chill, happy life. And so I guess the answer to your question is post Airbnb after I was just burnt out and feeling like, I don't need that. Let's try to find a different path. Plotted a nice one while doing that. With the podcast, which you mentioned was an extension and has been a success. How do you measure that success? Is it a monetary type thing? Is there something else that comes out of it that you get energy from that's different than the newsletter? Monetary, definitely. To be honest, that was a shockingly lucrative path that I did not expect. It makes basically the same as my newsletter makes now. And it took a lot less time to get there. My newsletter I've been building for four years at this point. And the podcast is about a year old and that already hit the amount of revenue I make with the newsletter. So that feels like, wow, this is working. The other is, are things growing? And if they are, I feel things are on the right track and I feel like I'm doing a good job. When they plateau is when I start to worry. And this, there's actually this Morgan Housel post where he talks about success. And he has this quote from Wolf Smith. They ask Will Smith, what does it feel like to be really successful? And he said, becoming successful is amazing. Being famous and successful is pretty cool. It's a mixed bag. Losing success is the worst thing you can feel. And that's how I feel with the newsletters. Like as it's growing, I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. Look at that chart go. And the same with the podcast. And then when it plateaus, I'm like, oh shit, I don't know. It's amazing what I've done and it's doing so well, but that doesn't feel good for it not to be growing. And then if it ever fall apart, that'd be incredibly sad. So I kind of look at growth and just charts going up into the right is mostly my heuristic. How do you guard against that or how do you react to it? Because there's inevitably times when things plateau, even if that's not necessarily plateauing, but it's the growth rate coming down. And then when you get to that point, do you go back to some core principles of like, actually what I'm trying to do here is help people in their jobs? Or is it more of a, okay, what do I need to do to re-up that growth rate? How do you think through those times? It's very easy and simple. Growth happens when I put out great stuff and growth stops when I the stuff I'm putting out is not so great. So what I find is anytime growth plateaus, it just means I haven't had an awesome post in a couple of weeks or I was on pat leave. And even though I banked a post for every week I was out, growth basically plateaued. It's like crazy. You look at the chart of my growth. It's all linear growth, except this one period when I was out on paternity leave. And I think the content was great that I put out during that it was all guest posts that I curated. But I think I wasn't there to promote it and hype it up and make it as awesome as I usually do. So essentially, when growth plateaus, it's always 100% of the time, a factor of the content isn't as good as it was. So I just go back to, how do I make things better? How do I come back to improving the quality, making it more valuable for people? So it all grows through word of mouth. And word of mouth is driven by, do people want to share this? Is it something they're really excited about and find useful? It's always about the quality. What are your heuristics for measuring the quality? 
Once a post is out, it's pretty easy. I look at views compared to other posts and I look at how much it's shared on Twitter slash X and LinkedIn. So my posts go out at 5 a.m. If I wake up at like seven, if it's been shared a few times, it's a sign this is a really good post. And if it wasn't shared at all, probably not so great. So interesting how that works. And then before I put it out, it's just me trusting my reaction to the writing when I look at it again and again and again. I find I just have learned to trust my initial reaction when I read something. So I write something and I put together a chart and I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I've learned to really trust that, even though that goes away immediately. And later I'm like, I don't even know if this is any good. That first reaction ends up being really powerful. So I pay attention to that. I also look at all my newsletter posts 30 times. I just like read through them and I'm always looking for something to improve and cut and simplify. And when I don't have anything else to do, that's when I know it's done. And so that's when I ship it. Also, I have a deadline to ship every Tuesday. So that's a forcing function. Usually it comes from, okay, there's nothing more I can really do unless I'm just like, I have another week, which I usually don't. And is there anything else there when you mention that gut reaction when you're looking at something could be a visual that catches your eye or a few paragraphs that you think really capture something different? Is there anything else? I know this is an art and we're always trying to make it into a science, but Anything else that you think that runs through your head in terms of questions you're asking yourself when you're looking at the piece before it's going out to measure that quality? It's mostly this like visceral reaction of, oh, this is surprising, or wow, this is interesting. Or actually, I'm reading this book called Snow Leopard, and it's about how legendary writers create a category of one. So it's about category, category creation. And one of the things in this book that he shares that really stuck with me is the best stuff creates non-obvious connections between things. There's kind of this pyramid he talks about where you like curate existing stuff and then share new interesting insight. But the best stuff is non-obvious connections between things that just like blow people's minds. I'm looking for that more and more actually. Just like, what am I saying that's completely non-obvious to everyone that emerges out of this research I'm doing? I have this template that I start post with. And at the top, I have these little bullet points to remind myself just to kind of push myself to write something new. So I ask myself, why should I care? What are the stakes for this post? What is the non-obvious connection, which I just mentioned? What's something I didn't expect? Surprise, I find often pulls people in. I just have another bullet point, keep it short. The main thing I've learned about writing is just keep it short, cut everything, cut the intro, cut by 50%, just keep cutting stuff. And I find that's a really important reminder. Well, I'll let it be known that Dom and I, whenever we do these interviews, have a shared Google Sheet up. And at the top of the Google Sheet is a quote, and it says, always try to clarify in your mind why this person matters and why it's worthy of your listener's time. So that stares at us and stares at us as we fire these questions away. So I do think those prompts are somewhat helpful reminders because it's easy to lose track of it when you're in the midst of things. So I do like hearing those bullet points. I might have to incorporate some of that. I do also find I don't look at them because they're just there always. And yeah. I don't know how you guys get around. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that thing. First time I've read that quote in like <laughs> weeks. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> then the other thing is it helps with the blank page. I look at that sometimes first. I'm like, oh, okay, what's the surprise here? What's the non-obvious connection? What are the stakes? And then that helps me get started with the introduction. I suck at introductions. I always like write the whole thing. And then I'm like, how do I, how do I introduce this in a really fun, exciting way? It's the worst. Spend so much time in the introduction. Same stress I have over a title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm interested by the one about stakes. Talk me through what that means to you and how that changes. 
what happens if you don't pay attention to this? Like I have a post on what is good retention for any product. I have to start with that usually with like, what happens if you don't have good retention? Why should you even care about this topic? Or positioning. If you get your positioning wrong, your whole business could fall apart, even though your product is the exact right thing that people want. And you have a great price point, you have product market fit, but if people don't understand it's for them, you lose. So I find that it's really important to help people understand, oh, I should really pay attention to this thing. And if I don't, things are going to happen. So it's more setting expectations for the listeners of like, this thing really matters, or this thing is maybe less cool. Why should I care? Why should you care about this? There's like so much. Why should I care about positioning? Who cares? My product is awesome. People love it. And I'm like, here's why you should care. You might be losing on a huge opportunity because you just haven't thought about this one idea. If we go back to what you said about actively not wanting to build an empire, really wanting to keep this as simple and straightforward as possible for yourself, nuts and bolts, what does that look like today? What team do you have around you, if any, to help you produce what you do? That's like the number one thing I do is just say no to everything. Talks I could be doing, I could be writing a book, I could be teaching courses, I could be hiring a team of writers. And the main thing I have to do is just say no to all that stuff because it'll just add more stress and make this whole thing complicated. I used to manage large teams. I would prefer never to do that again. It's much easier not to do that. I have a rule of not ever having a full-time employee. I have a bunch of contractors that help out with a lot of really important stuff, but I feel like once you have a full-time employee, a different person wants to share this. As soon as you have a full-time employee, they're like, can we have a career conversation? Where my career is going? I don't want to do that if I don't have to. And then in terms of writers, I'm always in the lookout. If there's an amazing person that could join and help write part of the newsletter, I just haven't found that person. And I don't know why they would do this versus do their own thing. I'm always open to that. But to answer your question, in terms of team, so I have the newsletter, I have the podcast, and then I have the community. And then there's a job board. So those are kind of the elements of this whole operation. Hunter Walk has this great quote, people are multi-skew creators. So those are all my skews. So the newsletter, basically I just have a copy editor, part-time contractor person and a designer who helps with illustrations. So that's the whole newsletter team. On the podcast, I have a production group called Pen Name. They do almost all the work for me. I figure out who's going to be on the podcast. I book them. I figure out the questions, record it, and then they take it from there. And then I have a team called Supermix that does clips from my podcast and post them on TikTok and Instagram. They help out with a few other things. So there's kind of these two groups that help out with the podcast. And then in the community, that's probably the biggest team. So I have a community lead who runs the community. And let me share what the community is. When you're a paid subscriber to the newsletter, you get an invite to this private Slack community, which is about 14,000 people now, product managers, founders, growth teams, and related functions. And it's incredible. I can't believe this thing is as good as it is. There's like real world meetups happening every month all over the world that are just emergent out of the community. We didn't organize these things. They just kind of started happening. Now we support them and have sponsors pay for drinks and food. It's a big community. So I have a team that basically helps manage it. So there's a community lead, someone that runs the meetup program, someone that runs a mentorship program, someone that runs AMAs, someone that runs book club, all these sorts of things. And they're all they're all contractors. And then there's a job board, which is run by a company called Pallet. And then their team basically runs it from. We know Pallet, Colossus, new friends of Colossus. They're awesome. Yes. Kai is great. With the community launching that, I have found that many people, the community launch is 
not what they expected. And it goes in a variety of different directions, not what they expect. And many of the outcomes don't look like your outcome, which sounds like it's great because it's self-sustaining in a way where things are being organized without you having to be directly involved with them. I'm curious about that. And I'm curious about the team. Was that team of contractors involved from day one? And were there any interesting insights that you took away just from launching the community and any major surprises that would stand out? So with the first question, I find that you need to do the thing first fully before you bring people on to understand what needs to be done and also just make sure it's as awesome as it can be. So when I launched the community, it was just me, signed up on Slack, added a logo and just invited 30 people to start. And it was just like this experiment of like, is this going to be useful? So initially, so the first question is just me. The second question, things that I learned about launching this community early on, looking back, the things that I remember at this point, one is start very small and curate who you invite because that sets the tone. And also, is there going to be a thriving, interesting community or is it going to be a bunch of people promoting their stuff? So be very selective about who you invite and then slowly invite more and more people. Also, I found it was really important to be really detail-oriented. Like it has to feel really high quality. So I made sure everyone had profile photos when they join. So there's like faces. I made sure people don't self-promote. So we have this one channel, promote your stuff. And that's the only channel you can promote your stuff. It's banned everywhere else because otherwise people will be coming and they're trying my startup. Oh, we're on product hunt. And that just destroys the whole vibe. So that was really important. That was like just a random thought I had and it worked out really well. One channel to funnel everyone's promotional stuff ends up being really interesting too. see people's cool products in there and then make sure people use threads, actually reply in a thread. So it's not messy. Make sure people are asking questions in the right channels. So a lot of these little, like little things, they sound really minor, but that's the stuff that makes it feel like the signal to noise is high and not just a bunch of people yelling at each other. Early on, what did that curation look like? Was it asking people to fill out answers to a series of questions or like practically, what was it? It was a combination of who is the biggest super fan of the newsletter, I'd say, just like most involved in the comments, replies on Twitter, contributes in ways that was like maybe half the people, people that were just like really involved already. And then the other half was just interesting, fancy people where other people would be like, oh, wow, they're in there. That's cool. I want to join that thing. So that's, I think, what I did. And then even the first hundred, I kept trying to continue that. Who are the most active supporters of the newsletter? And then who are just like really interesting people that I know will have really interesting insights that would be excited about helping people and be a part of this thing. And the whole pitch was like, get in this early, help me build this community. It's going to be great. And then when they start posting, I often try to reply initially and help them get an answer. Or I tag someone that could help the answer to kind of like spur conversations early on. And then eventually I back off. I specifically called it Friends of Lenny's Newsletter Community because I didn't want it to be about me, like Lenny's community. Even though everything I do now is just Lenny's blank, it's like the opposite of what I wanted it to be, but it just I couldn't stop it, the momentum of the naming convention. I don't participate in the community at all. I try to make it really about everyone else, not about me. And so I don't I don't spend a lot of time there answering questions. So the beginning, like what percentage time of your week would you have spent in there? And now is it zero or is it like 5%? Initially, it was a lot of my time. It was like, oh man, this is going to suck up a lot of time. <laughs> At least half my week, I probably spent in there just making sure it was awesome. I mostly poke around. So I spend maybe a few hours poking around and mostly because I trust the team to be on top of everything. And that team, are these full-time roles for them? Are they doing this with other communities? Were they 
part of your specific community and people that wanted to get more involved. I'm curious about how serious their role is. They're not going to have career conversations with you, but I am curious where they fit in. So initially, I'm trying to remember the sequence of community leads I had, but one of them, she was just a volunteer within the community initially. She just loved the community and I just noticed she was very involved. So I asked her, hey, do you want to help run this thing? And she was a full-time product manager at a company. And this was just like a part-time job for her. And then when she left, I think she nominated Trey, who runs the community now. And he was a founder. He loved events and community and things like that. And so he just wanted to be involved and help. And then the startup didn't work out. And now he does this and he helps another community in a similar way. And he's actually looking for a couple other communities to help out because it's not a full-time job. He's in there probably 10 hours a week, something like that. Good to know. Trey might have to get his number. I will connect you. How much of a, like a wind behind what you do does it feel, the community? like Obviously, they're there because they really enjoy what you do. When you go to launch something new or when it's even just a new post, do you feel the community kind of rallying behind these things? Or is it not quite as in your face as that? Similar to how I don't allow people to promote their stuff in the community, I also don't promote anything in the Slack. I'm not like, hey, everyone, I got a new post. Go check it out. I only just send the newsletter and whatever happens, happens. People often share the newsletter in the Slack and then, you know, ask questions, talk about it. Mostly it's people get the newsletter, they love it, they share on Twitter. It's less about the Slack community. When you look at all the different things that you've launched and grown with specifically the newsletter starting out as number one, how much of your career experience with product and the frameworks around products are directly applicable to what you're doing? Are there any specific frameworks that really stand out? Or would you say it's just the broad category of different product frameworks that you're applying when you're doing this? There's like very few product management-y things that I apply to this. As an example, if I was like, oh, optimize the shit out of this thing, like I would be doing this very differently and I'm happy I'm not. Most of this is the opposite of what I would be doing as a product manager. I'm not like, how do I drive growth? How do I optimize conversion of this thing? I find that growth mostly comes from just putting out great stuff that people want to share. Just because you have had so much success with growth and you're not focused on hyper-optimizing, is there any lesson or takeaway there that could be applied back to the product management role and over-optimization with some of this stuff? I think newsletters are different from product in that newsletters are really easy to share. You can just email it to someone and forward along. And so word of mouth is even more simple if something is great with a newsletter. So I think there's that. There's this thing I did kind of realize looking back at what newsletters are most successful, which connects to this jobs to be done framework. Clay Christensen helped Pioneer that talks about how anytime you buy a product or buy either physical or digital, you have this job that you need them to do. There's a great example that Bob Muesta, he's on my podcast. He was one of the co-creators along with Clay Christensen, shared an example of the jobs to be done framework, which is When you look at a Milky Way and a Snickers bar, you would think they're competing with each other. They're two candy bars. Apparently, people buy a Snickers when they're hungry and they just want to fill up quickly. It's this like powerful snack meal versus a Milky Way, which apparently people buy just to feel a little comfort. It's like a comfort food. They're feeling sad. We're going to buy Milky Way because it's velvety and like smooth and not filling. It's like the opposite of filling. You just want it to be, oh, that feels good. I feel better now. It's an interesting example of you think they're competing, but they're doing very different jobs and people buy them for very different reasons. And the lens there on newsletters and I think podcast is 
it's important to think about what is the job you are doing for people. You could also just think about what problem you're solving for people, but I think the job is a really interesting framework. For example, I want to become a better parent. There's this newsletter by Emily Oster that is incredibly good at helping you answer all these questions about parenting. So she's just doing a really good job at solving this problem, becoming a better parent. There's newsletters on how to make money. So these are jobs. I want to make money. I want to stay informed on what's happening in the world. I want to be smarter about what's happening in the world. There's a bunch of newsletters to do that. My newsletter, I realized the job I'm doing for people is help them at building better products, helping them grow their products, helping them accelerate their career. So if I can do that for them better than most anyone else, it's going to go great. And if I get too broad and just, here's a bunch of interesting things and pontificating on the world, it won't work. That's just a really interesting, I think, an important lesson is think about the job you're doing for someone, whether you're making a podcast or newsletter, and then make sure you're doing that job better than most anyone else out there. We think about this a lot too. There is a tension or a balance here. And I think you've already referenced it in a way where you want to be specific enough that someone A, knows why they need to come to you and also that they'll get useful stuff out of it that they can apply in this specific domain or area. But also you need to give yourself the latitude to not get bored because it's a very real issue of burnout. I've written about this one thing a hundred times. I do not want to do it a hundred and first times. How do you think about that and play it out practically? I think about this a lot and I'm happy that I didn't follow this advice that I was getting early on that David Perel often shares, which is you want to build this personal monopoly around a very specific niche. I was talking to him about this the other day. He's like, people forget his number one rule is anything that keeps you from writing is bad and you should not let it stop you. So that's like rule number one. Rule number two is try to find a really specific niche. So for me, exactly as you said, if I were to follow that advice blindly, I would just be Mr. Product Manager guy. And I would just write about product management all the time, but I would be so bored out of my mind. That is not that interesting for me intellectually. And so I specifically chose this kind of Venn diagram of topics, product management, growth, startup stuff, career stuff. It's all like related, but it gives me a lot of room to operate and they're close enough. It was hard to explain what I do. My description of the newsletters, an advice column on building product, driving growth and accelerating your career. Very long. But it doesn't matter. I think the most important thing, as you said, is you need to find something you're excited to keep pursuing and writing about and thinking about and are curious about because it's so hard to keep doing this for a long time. And to do that, you need to stay really curious and interested in the topic. I would say it's always better to go broader than focus on like, okay, I'm just going to become Mr. Building and Public Guy. It's too narrow. It gets like, all right, how many things can I say about this one little thing? gets boring. In terms of the performance of those different categories, we see it sometimes where we know what our listeners are here for. And I would say this is across the Colossus platform, or at least many of the podcasts that we do. There's very specific topics that they're most interested in. And while we might be personally interested in others from time to time, those episodes just don't perform nearly as well. And we're okay with that personally because of the energy and there is still a group in the audience that's going to listen to everything and then you're going to attract some new people. So there's benefits to it. But I'm curious from your side of things, if you one, notice that same thing or two, if you feel like your audience is generally there to participate in everything that you're doing. No, they're not. Today, I put out a podcast on how to get press for your product which to me is like, that is so interesting. Yeah, very interesting. <laughs> how can you not want to know that? It's step-by-step, step, how to get press for your product. But it's not killing it. And I think it's because 
Most of my audience is product managers at larger companies, and they don't need that. That being said, I always think of it just again as the puzzle pieces. I'm just answering every question a founder will have, even a product leader will have eventually. So even if they don't need this now, it'll be there for when they do need it. So I think a bit more that way. I just want to touch on every topic over time. But no, there's definitely stuff I'm excited about that people don't care as much about. And that's okay. I think it's really important that you do the things you're excited about. I think Patrick tweeted this recently. The only way to keep this up is to stay curious about the thing you're writing about. I totally agree. Otherwise, you create a job for yourself that's just, what are you doing? Why'd you do this to yourself? Force yourself to spend time just thinking about only product management for the rest of your life. It's not. Why would you do that? You reminded me about the puzzle pieces that I wanted to ask you about. I don't know whether you're a visual person or not. Have you actually mapped this out in terms of the areas that you have and want to cover over time? Or it's kind of more of a feel and intuition thing. You just know some of the areas that you need to explore and the ones that you have covered well. Definitely the latter. I haven't like made a list of like, here's the remaining questions I want to ask. I do have a list of all the ideas of things I want to write about. And it's at this point, 50 things and it keeps growing. But now it's not like a whole 10 year vision of here's the things I need to write, but it's more Here's what I haven't done. Okay, cool. I got to pursue that. The trick is that the easy stuff gets knocked out and what remains ends up being the harder and harder <laughs> stuff where I have to do tons of research and <laughs> that becomes the bigger challenge over time. The hard stuff is all that's left. And when you think about your SKUs, how do you see them interacting with each other or do you see them as pretty distinct? I guess you often hear people talking about kind of top and bottom of funnel devices in their business. Do you see it in that way or do you just see it as another way of engaging with your audience? The newsletter is all. That's what I've learned. Everything I do, the newsletter is the source of everything. So with the podcast, it became like a top 10 technology podcast only because of the newsletter, because I have the distribution. People know there's a new episode every time. With the job board, every newsletter issue has like, hey, looking for a job or hiring? Check out my job board. And then with the community, it comes from people subscribing to the newsletter. So you'd think there'd be like some kind of flywheel of this drives this, this drives... No, it's all... Newsletter drives everything. And that's why I need to not ever mess that up because everything rides on the newsletter. And I think part of the reason for that is emails, again, are so easy to share. Podcasts are so hard to share. Job boards, how do you share that? It's so hard. So I think there's something magical. It's weird, but newsletters have so much power in so many ways. And so I'm lucky that that's where I started this whole journey. And really, it is the driver of everything I do. When you think about media and whether you call it media or not, what you're doing now and who you've been able to learn from. You mentioned David Perel and not taking some of his advice, but obviously David's talked a lot about the benefits of writing online and I think shared a lot of great insights. Is there anyone else that you have looked at as either a mentor or someone that could be studied that really instructed how you built out your own business? I can't think of anyone, to be honest. I've never really had like role models or heroes Honestly, I wish I did because that would make things easier. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do what this person's doing. I think with a podcast more than anything, when I listen to podcasts now, I'm just like, oh, that's a really interesting way of asking questions. And that's a cool way of introing. So I think it's more with the podcast I'm finding people to learn from. But with the business in general, honestly, not. And it's partly because I didn't really know where it was going to go and I didn't have a plan. I just kind of followed it and see where it went. That really hasn't happened. I wish I had someone to model. <laughs> All the better. Does this feel like something that you'll do forever? There's like a bittersweetness to that. On the one hand, I don't know how I stop this. People are buying an annual subscription every day. 
So at least I have to go for a year. Like I can always shut it down for sure. And it's over, but that'd be incredibly sad in my pocketbook and intellectually. And I don't know what I do. So assuming I'm not going to shut it down, I don't know what the exit path is for a newsletter like this, where people are subscribing to an ongoing subscription. In theory, I have to write an awesome newsletter every week for the rest of my life. That's the default path of this thing. Other options, maybe someone buys it someday, but then I'd have to keep writing it. So that's not a really exit path. Maybe I hire people to write it, but I haven't found anyone that could do that. I don't know if that's possible. So I don't really know where this all goes. The main thing is I don't think about that too much. I mostly focus on how do I keep this sustainable for every week, write something awesome. So far, it's been no problem. I'm not thinking too far ahead. And I think psychologically, I shouldn't because then I'd get like, what the fuck? Where's this going to go? I'm curious, and I think a few of our listeners would be mad if we didn't ask this question about your relationship with Substack and writing on that platform at the scale you're at now and how you think about the take rate that they have on the work that you do and what you get in return. I know you've seen tremendous growth, particularly from their recommendations feature, and they've been obviously very good to you to this point. What's the internal discussion or monologue that you have about that platform and other platforms that you may or may not use in the future? I'd say broadly, I'm incredibly thankful to Substack for existing because I never would have ended up doing this if not for Substack because I never planned to write a paid newsletter. That was never a plan. And it only emerged because I decided, let me just use Substack as a blog and collect email addresses. And oh, they happen to have this paid feature. Maybe one day I'll charge. I just kind of like walked this little journey that Substack almost allowed and such a simple product, but it's just like this magical combination of just the right features that makes it exactly what you need it to be, which is a blog, a newsletter, paywall thing. People can pay. So really simply, if it didn't exist, if I was on Medium the whole time, there wouldn't have been a path to follow. All the other platforms, ConvertKit and whatever, this wasn't their thing, paid newsletters. This would not have happened if not for Substack. So I'm just always thankful to them for existing. And then, yeah, in terms of the fees, I pay them an absurd amount of money at this point because the newsletter generates a lot of money. So their fees are 10%. They drive over 10% of my paid subscribers and they drive 70 to 80% of my free subscribers. So they pay for themselves at this point, even though the number is absurd, it makes sense. And the newsletter grew because I just bet on Substack, feels like it's taken off, things are going in a good direction. I'm just going to try to ride this wave. And it worked out really well. I think all the other platforms are starting to copy a lot of their features, like this recommendation feature, which was transformative for me. And I think for a lot of newsletters, but doing the math at this point, it's really easy. If they're driving anywhere near 10% of my paid subscribers, they're paying for themselves. Why would I not keep this up? And I actually found that people that try to over-optimize their email platform and moved off of Substack to build their own or use Ghost or something like that, Every one of them slowed down. Their growth slowed or plateaued. And many of them now are coming back to Substack. The thing I find is that there's a limited limited amount of time you have for writing, for making your content awesome. And any of that time you're spending on optimizing your landing page, fixing bugs, migrating things, fixing your layout is just time you could be spending on making the content more awesome. So the magic of Substack, again, it's so simple. They do everything for you. And that gives you the time to write and do nothing else. And even though you may be making a little more money, it's really important to think about the long-term. What are you trying to do? This thing's going to work if your content's awesome. And if you can make your content more awesome, things will work better for you and it'll grow faster and it'll make up for the incremental amount of percentage you're losing, either in revenue or in growth. So 
So that's why Substack's great. I think other platforms could achieve that too, but I just find every time someone moves, they're just like, um, I don't know, things aren't working out as well. A very thoughtful and balanced answer, which you come to expect from you. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom on kind of your journey. And I think it's very refreshing, particularly for me to listen to. Really appreciate your time. Glad to be here. That was a lot of fun. So Matt, what do you make of that? Well, it was a strange feeling to have to fight for questions with somebody else asking at the same time. I had a few episodes to myself there and I was really getting into my groove and then having to share the ball with you was a bit of a change, but I think we shook off some rust there and then got back to it. Yeah, I want to interrupt that because I kept hearing on my travels how you were going to welcome me back with open arms. I was excited about that. Well, you're never normally that kind to me. So I was like, oh, wow, you must really be missing me. And then I come back early Monday morning, open my emails, see that Matt has put our first recording back together at 10 p.m. my time. I was like, if this is opening, welcome me back with open arms, then I do, I do not want to know what the opposite of this looks like. That is fair. I did schedule it on a day that you had a 9 p.m. call already. So I tried to optimize for that. Doubling it up. <laughs> yes. And I knew you were a big fan of Lenny, as am I. So I wanted to make sure you were on. So I tried to work around all these schedules and do it best. As much as that might feel like a slight, I promise you it wasn't. And I hope that the conversation lived up to your expectations. It did. I really, really found this interesting in a number of different ways. It's funny because we got to the end of the conversation and we didn't record for that long with Lenny. I think he was kind of surprised maybe by how short it was in some ways. But I think we got, and like I'm sure people could disagree with us, but from our perspective, I think we got like all of the, the nuggets that we wanted to get out of him. And like one of the overriding feelings coming straight off the call is how similar his experiences have been to ours and the conversations that we have. Even, you know, the first one of like, how do you describe yourself to people? And he's like, yeah, that's something I struggle with. Those things just seem very simple and trivial and stupid. But think of how many times you, you talk to people that you do know or don't know about what you do. All of those times add up in your mind when you start trying to exp explain what your job actually is. From that point forward into the conversation, like a lot of what he said really rhymed with my experience in particular of kind of like building Colossus and making media for people. 100%. I think we spent a good amount of time after we stopped the mics and stopped recording talking about a lot of the war stories and different things we deal with. But I think you're spot on. And I think it's a category that he's hitting an audience that is very high caliber that we also try to hit maybe in separate categories, separate niches, his being more tech and product focused, us being a little bit more on the investing side, but certainly getting entrepreneurs one thing that just stands out to me with his work, and I know I beat this drum over and over and over again, he does a lot of research, gathers a lot of data, puts out information in a way where it is new. So I'm like staring at something that he put together, and it's the first 10 hires for all of these startups. Oh, first person was an engineer. Second person was an engineer. Third person was a go-to-market growth person. Then you had the fourth hire was a salesperson. That's very interesting information to look, compare and contrast all these different startup businesses. And that's, to me, proprietary work, proprietary research, data, gathering, and then presenting it in a good way. And I can't overstate how different that feels to me than what a lot of other people are doing, just putting it simply. And he often then depicts the information he finds, which is new, in a, an interesting way. So like, I think that one, if my memory serves me right, he's got like a very cool chart visually explaining how these first 10 hires, what the similarities and differences look like. 
often proprietary data comes back in spreadsheets. He is much more qualitative in his research and then is able to bring them into the stories and the articles that he writes, which I think, again, like separates him and the pictures that I just referenced. I would 100% agree with you. He talks about his $150 being maybe a stretch or kind of at the top end. And I know you probably like start comparing it to Netflix and whatever. But like I would say in the field, that is very, very good value. Oh, 100%. I think it's great value. And the more that I see the work that he has done, maybe it's because we're in the investing space and investing data is so picked over. There's so much of it out there, so many people doing it. And you have to go into private markets where the information is not readily available. So it does take a little bit of elbow grease to get in there. But it just stands out to me where I'm like rethinking things quite a bit. And how can you start doing some of that work. Now, I don't want to like gloss over the fact that it takes a shit ton of time to put that together and a lot of gathering. But to me, that's very, very interesting. Yeah. And even sequencing this stuff, you know, when you have a weekly thing to do in the background, you're trying to pull together this 100 hour research piece by calling people out, finding information. He's obviously scheduling podcasts at the same time as well. That maze is not an easy one to make your way through. So he has a huge amount of my respect. And the thing that like, always comes back, it's not just like finding information, it's like actually pulling out actionable insights. Okay, so what tools do you use? Even when he was talking us through kind of his podcast or his team, we didn't even ask all the different tools he actually uses, which I found incredibly valuable to like see what systems he puts in play. And that's what you get out of every conversation with him. That seems like a very easy thing to do, but there are very, very few media organizations, podcasts, newsletters, et cetera, in the business field actually do that. Yeah. It's where product person and a product personality and those frameworks certainly come into play and thinking through systems and all of that. He marries all the things that you could take away from product in an ideal way. Many people would say, oh, you can't optimize content too much because then you just lose the art and the soul. But he's found a way to really balance that. And it's very clear that he doesn't over-optimize everything. And I think he's found that really, really good balance. I would say just in terms of lessons that we could take away on a micro level that we might be able to actually apply that will actually generate dollars for us, he might have the best things that are coming out of this. Yeah. And specifically for me, that is the newsletter. I know we've heard it from a few different people over our time doing this podcast. It really rang true last night that we should be spending more time thinking about our newsletter and creating new things with that at the moment. It's more of a curation for people. And I think people find it very interesting, but it's not really grown. We should shoulder more responsibility for growing that property because of the benefits it brings. You know, He said all the SKUs, as he put it, that he had, the newsletter is still absolutely the main thing. To look at a revenue chart of his business, that wouldn't look like the main, main thing, but it is. That's the source where everything flows from. The Arnie's letter has always been kind of like an afterthought. The podcast come first. And I'm not saying that it should compete at the same level, but it definitely needs to be high priority for my thinking. I think it's the content within the newsletter that matters the most. A lot of people say, yeah, just grow it. But I think it's what you're growing it with, what's driving the growth. And if it's the quality of the content inside, which he talks a lot about quality. I thought it was funny. We eventually tapped into how he feels in terms of beforehand, before the results come out, how he can feel for quality. But he's one of the only people that I hear saying, it's directly correlated to the amount of work you put in. You actually hear so many people say, you never know what's going to be a hit. So you just got to keep firing them out. I like that he's different in that way. Do you think the same rings true for us? The things that we spend most time on ends up being the best? Yes. Why say? What are the examples when you say that? 
Well, there are very few when I think about an interview. There are some that just right off the bat, amazing. There are many which require a lot of prep, a lot of thought before you go into the interview, maybe more than one recording, maybe some editing, and then a very thoughtful distribution. I think if you add up all of those things, if you look at the success of certain episodes, I think there would be some correlation there in terms of the time we spent. Now, you have someone like Demotorin where that was just recording, done, out, boom, huge. But I think there's quite a few others in that top 10 where there was more hands-on work involved. I think I would agree with it on the front end. The more prep that goes into this and dialogue you generally have with the guest, the better the outcome. I think if you're spending a ton of work after a recording has already happened, trying to take it from an okay to a good. And I think like you very rarely manage to get it from an okay into an, an exceptional. I think that happens ahead of time if you can do the work and the guest buys into it as well. And it was interesting. And I think you can talk about this more eloquently when you asked about how do you measure the quality of the work first? He was like, it's all down to growth and like how people respond to the stuff I put out in terms of like more results-based stuff. And then when we asked about, you know, what happens when growth starts to slow and he's like, the hundred percent of the time, it's just go back to making better stuff. When he first said it, my mind was like, no, that's different for us. But then when I like thought about it after, it's actually spot on for us. Whenever like we have a few, a couple of weeks or a month where things are just slowing down slightly, when you go back, you're like, I'm going to find some A plus guests and I'm going to have like these really killer conversations. I'm going to do a ton of prep and make sure this like starts firing again. It invariably does. I do think he's right. I wanted to say this is true if you've got product market fit, quote unquote, but it's not true if you're still trying to find the niche that you want to attack. I actually don't think that's true. And I think what he said is valid. You made a good distinction there in terms of finding the right guest. So that requires a lot of work. It might not necessarily be doing something once you have that guest. And comparing that to Lenny, he is doing a lot of work himself, doing a lot of research, putting together a lot of things. It's not reliant on any other person. We are naturally in a world where we do have to be dependent on some other people sometimes when it comes to the guests, and that can drive quality. Honestly, that makes me feel good. Again, it's just a gut check thing. That checks out to me. If you are spending time doing the right type of work, it should increase the quality. And that should have an impact in terms of the success of any given piece. If it's just a matter of staring at a screen and typing, retyping over and over, and it's not something in terms of gathering information, I don't think it's the same thing. So not that we need more nuance, but in terms of the time spent, I think that matters. I think that's fair. Do you want to expand a bit on like your surprise at him being kind of results-based to begin with? It was surprising when I asked that question that he immediately went to the results in terms of quality, where I wouldn't think that would be the case. You know, it's usually like there's a process, and then once it's shipped, there's a lot of variables that will have an impact on the success of something. If you ship something on the same day that 50 other massive pieces get shipped and there's something else going on in the world, it might not have the same success as if you shipped it on another day. And that's just the variable of the day of the week or the day you picked outside of your control. So I was a little bit surprised to hear that, but it did seem like we were able to come around. And I think it's just very clear to me, he's very deliberate about how he thinks about things, what he looks at. And I admire that because yes, you need to have that results focus at the same time, knowing inside what is driving the quality. And it's not just dependent on the audience saying it's quality. Two closing thoughts to me. One, the community is wild that he's managed to build and that they're self-organizing at this point together, meeting up all across the world. There's 20 plus meetups around the world from his community this month. 
That's nuts. That's incredible. But like, what value does he derive out of that? Don't worry about that. <laughs> Taken care of. Well, I just would say, yes, there maybe should be some thought in terms of where the value accrues. But I'll tell you what, if people are meeting up like that, they're probably going to stay in the community. No, I think that's true. I'm being a little bit facetious. I know where you're going with that. I think it's a completely fair question from a business perspective. But I think that it's a high class problem. I've heard him talk about how he's most proud of that. And I can understand why. But I was also really surprised that he doesn't spend that much time in the community these days. He was really thoughtful about building it. And now it sustains itself, which is awesome. That's exactly what you want as someone who's putting out new stuff all of the time. But it did surprise me. He doesn't spend that much time in the community. But I do think he spends a lot of time on the community. And I think that's very thoughtful and strategic on his part in terms of what it's there for and what it's not there for. It's like a organism. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I was going to say was like interesting is when you asked him whether how much of his product management expertise and the things he writes about he actually uses in his business. And he was like, oh, basically nothing. That is kind of fascinating. And when he pushed him, was like, well, that doesn't mean that product management is wrong. And I think his answer was pretty thoughtful and actually kind of made sense to me. But still, I think there is a degree of over-optimization happening there in that world where if you come out of it, but still talk about it and don't apply any of the principles, then maybe there's surely there's some disconnect, even if it's only a newsletter that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, it was the obvious question to ask. But I think there's something there. It's, again, understanding that there are variables outside of your control and being a little bit more focused on quality in the, the process, which I appreciate that he does. Any closing thoughts from you? No, that was very interesting conversation. It's one where after that seven nuggets of media wisdom episode that I pulled out of my hat last week, people were saying that was helpful, but I would like to know how you're applying it within your own business. This is one where there's a few things that I want to be able to take away and then do another six nuggets of media wisdom episode in the future. Point to this episode with Lenny and just say, he said X, we did Y. Boom. That's quality content right there. My closing thought on this one is there was a lot that got left with me that I made me say, hmm, very, very interesting. That's really for thinking of you. Maybe I'll book a holiday and give you the opportunity to do that. <laughs> yeah. No, I think <laughs> I will need a holiday. All right. Good stuff. It was a good one and it was a nice mix. It's somebody that we think very highly of and we consider a peer in the grander world of media and new media. So thank you, Lenny. Thank you for half opening your arms back to me. It's nice to be back. Welcome back. <laughs> See you next week.